This is a Federal News Network podcast. Methane is a useful chemical, but not when it leaks into the atmosphere from production or transport of oil and natural gas. A team of scientists at the National Institute of Standards and Technology developed a technology for detecting methane leaks and thereby getting them cut off earlier. For their work, Nathan Newberry, Kevin Cossell, and Ian Coddington are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. Ian Coddington joins me now. Dr. Coddington, good to have you on. Good to be here. Tell us about this development, because I thought that detecting a particular gas, you know, coming from some source was a relatively routine thing to be able to detect. The trick with greenhouse gases is that the um, the, the enhancement you see, the, the increase, is, is only a small fraction of the background, right? With for CO2 and methane, there's there's so much of it out there, and in a way, that's the problem. That to say anything meaningful about a source of the gas, you have to be able to see this very small change in a large background. So, like LA, if you were to go downwind of LA, you would see a CO2 increase. It's only about one or two percent over the background, which of course is, is just not that much. The sensor that we built is based on this technology called uh, optical frequency combs, which is sort of this novel laser system that gives you many, many colors simultaneously. And it turns out uh, you can you can leverage that to be able to see these gases in the atmosphere with the kind of precision that you need to see these kind of exquisitely small changes. And the NIST team did this in conjunction with some academic researchers? So the frequency comb itself is very much sort of a NIST legacy invention. Uh, Jan Hall won the Nobel Prize for it back in 2005. And since then, it's it's been this hammer that's kind of looking for a nail, right? It's Everybody knew it was going to be this exciting new technology, but nobody really knew how it was going to shake out or what it would be useful for. So over the years, our team at NIST has been essentially devoted to a series of applications for frequency combs. And one of those that we considered a number of years ago was was applications looking for leaks from oil and gas infrastructure, essentially methane coming out of wells. It's increasingly a problem. And at that point, the application space started to get really applied. And we had this partnership with Greg Rieker at the University of Colorado, who's the combustion expert. And he kind of came to us and said, hey, hey, could we write this proposal for you know the RPE program to see if we could apply this technology in this, this application space? And we wrote the proposal and we I have to admit we were... I wish I could say we were prescient enough to know that it was going to do as well as it did. Um, it, you know, in a lot of ways, it was more wildly successful than I ever would have imagined. Sure. And does it detect gas that could not be detected before, or does it just give you greater sensitivity to maybe small leaks that together add up to a lot of leaks? Yeah. So there's a there's a couple of things that it does differently. One, um, it doesn't detect gases that you couldn't see before, but it can detect an array of gases simultaneously. So from the standpoint of understanding environmental air quality, it's it's really nice to be able to see that whole manifold because you can see correlations of gases and you can know, hey, if if I'm seeing CO2 and nitrous oxide together or CO2 and CO together, I'm probably seeing traffic emissions. And if I can see, you know, methane and ammonia together, I'm probably seeing emissions that are coming from agriculture. So there's, there's a source attribution aspect that's really nice with the, this kind of array of gases you can get. But for the oil and gas work, the real advantage was was that precision. And what that buys you actually is you can um, not necessarily see a small leak because it turns out the small leaks are not not the important ones, it's the big ones. But you can see a leak from very far away. You can look from up to five kilometers away and and see these leaks. And that that gives you a huge cost scaling, right? Because the amount of infrastructure that you can monitor with a single device goes roughly as that that distance to the 
squared power. So you, <laughs> sure, you can start understood. to see many, many devices with a single system. And it sounds like having a greater precision of attribution of source helps in negotiation with the leaker when it comes to what oh, remediation might be required. Exactly. The quantification of the emission is, is a really key part of this whole puzzle. And that was something that was missing uh, five, ten years ago when, when the oil and gas infrastructure emission issues started to, to come up. And, you know, to be fair to the oil and gas industry, they the technology to understand these leaks and to understand the quantity that was leaking didn't exist. So they, they were a little bit blind to that. And what's really exciting is that as that technology has been developed and also, you know, especially due to work that's been done at our neighbors at NOAA and also you know, Stanford and UT Austin, the picture has come into focus of what these leaks look like. And the exciting thing is that it turns out it's not a death by a thousand cuts. It's the really big leaks matter. And it turns out that if you can find those leaks very quickly and, and mitigate them very quickly, you can mitigate an enormous amount of environmental damage, but you can also save money as an oil and gas company. And that is, that is part of what has really driven the need for this technology is, you know, it's a bottom line revenue thing. It, it's one of those really rare moments where the interests of oil and gas and the interests of environmentalists all align. And, you know, the reason we got there is, sure. is because we're able to do measurements. Well, the economic motive, I guess, is always one of the most powerful ones. We're speaking with Dr. Ian Coddington. He's a scientist at NIST, and along with Kevin Kossel and Nathan Newberry, is a finalist in this year's Service to America Medals program. And tell us a little bit about your background. Do you come to this as a spectrometer type of expert, as an oil and gas expert? What's your What do you bring to this? Yeah, so I was, um, you know, initially I was trained as an atomic physicist, which is not really related to either of those things. But, you know, I, I graduated about the time that these frequency combs were really becoming a thing and, and it looked like a really fun place to play in so i, I sort of rebranded as a, a laser physicist definitely in the case that it, we have this real advantage in our team and that there's, there's a really broad depth of abilities and you know kevin is actually much more of a chemist but we also are able to get electrical engineers on staff and and combine a broad array of expertise which is, is kind of key to really pushing the the boundaries on this sort of technology. Yeah, frequency comb sounds like sort of a cosmic kazoo, I would guess here. What has <laughs> what has industry acceptance been so far? It was a long journey on the oil and gas. For a long time, they were, they were certainly quite standoffish. We we had RPE, this Department of Energy program, sort of behind us that was sort of pushing the interaction. It was a little bit like your you know, parents kicking you out of the house and saying, you know, go meet the kid next door. But the, the thing that changed, actually, is, is about partway through that program, it, the, the picture for these emissions started to come into focus, I think, for industry, and they realized, oh, you know, there, there's this potential efficiency gain. And also, there, RPE forced us to do these double-blind tests, where you, you essentially go and there's a Hollywood oil and gas set that they've created, and they, they've routed all these leaks or to retired oil and gas equipment. And you, you know, it's, it's like taking finals in college all over again. You know, you, you go in there and you, you measure for two weeks, and then you got to tell them what you think was leaking and you know they don't <laughs> once you're done they give you a scorecard and, and we all breathed a big sigh of relief when it came back and it turned out you know the system had performed extremely well and that that got a lot of industry's attention so it could have been a herd of cows eating well or it could have been a fracking situation behind the scenes that's what you had to figure out yeah yeah exactly and you know we, we had to, to see the small leaks and the big leaks and and the pulse positives are a big one they they really want to know if they're going to have to send an oil and gas crew out that there's not, 
you know, this isn't a mistake. RPE, of course, they were they were mean about it too. And then a couple of times they told us there was a leak and there wasn't one. They wanted to make sure we were sensitive to that as well. And can this technology be turned into a commercial instrument? There's a monitoring service that spun out of University of Colorado. Essentially, you know, over this program, we transferred the technology to University of Colorado. And then with them, we kind of helped stand up this company, although, you know, most of that was handled through the University of Colorado and Great Recur. As they became a company, you know, we're federal, so it, we needed to step back at that point. So for the last couple of years, I've been mostly a spectator, but it's been really exciting to watch. Like the the growth has been phenomenal, and they're at a point where every time they drop down a spectrometer in an oil and gas play, they're mitigating something like 40 million cubic feet of methane emissions per system per year, which at today's prices, you know, pays for the system in about six months or something. The financial case is absolutely there, and that's causing the, the business case to just take off. It's, it's been really fun to see. Dr. Ian Connington is a scientist at the National Institute of Standards and Technology. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And he, along with Kevin Kossel and Nathan Newberry, are finalists in this year's Service to America Medals program. We'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? You know, I often think about this because, you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And And I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that 
that what we say and do, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted, they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a social security administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, From there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called Labor and Employee Relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. 
Looking forward to talking to you next time. Want more ways to show your good side to the world? Donate plasma at a Griffles Center and join thousands of donors who are helping to save lives. Receive up to $1,000 your first month. Learn more at grifflesplasma.com. Looking to expand or move your company? Look no further than Ohio. With a talented workforce for in-demand industries like tech, healthcare, engineering, manufacturing, and more, you can staff up and scale for growth. Ohio's central location and reliable infrastructure will help you impress your customers, while Ohio's affordable cost of living and quality of life will excite your employees. Why survive somewhere else when your business can thrive in Ohio? Visit successinohio.com today.